0: I definitely constantly feel feel very alive while using uh, Skype. Should we put it that way? I never, I, I, I never feel there's always a frisson of danger, even when it works fine. I always feel a bit like I'm doing a tightrope walk. Well, the advantage of doing it this way is that I've got voice recorder running on my phone as well. So I've now, I'm also doing a backup copy of both of this as well through through the phone. So I'm recording my end. You can record your end. But um, excellent. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Right. Oh, lovely. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. So I'll do a little intro and then I'll ask you the first question again and we can just go from there. Thank you. Okay. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare. I am your guide through the Oftentimes scary, but ultimately rewarding world of writing, storytelling, and of course, story reading and story enjoying. Today, I'm not alone. I am joined uh, via the wonders of uh, m- relatively established technology uh, by author Peter Newman.
1: Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Although I should say it's hay fever season, so I may be a little snuffly or maybe even tearful as this podcast goes on.
0: Well, that's lovely. You'll bring a much-needed uh, uh, poignance and emotional resonance and depth to the proceedings as we go forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and lots I, of snot as well. Yeah, snot. Well, what what is more emotionally resonant and poignant than uh, bogeys? Indeed. Um. So, there's so much I, w- I want to talk to you about because I've been uh, reading, I've been immersed in your worlds for the past few weeks and thoroughly enjoying myself. But I guess I want to start with um with, with with a fairly uh, with a fairly uh, unoriginal question but just because it's a, a good point of starting before we actually dive into talking about your books and how you write and how you make worlds out of just your imagination and bits of words i just wanted to ask where all this however you define this started for you like where did stories and doing what you do how did it start how did you get started
1: this this actually feels it's like one of those um innocuous questions that is kind of weirdly deep and philosophical you know where where do these things start and i guess you can you can draw that line in different places in my life i guess i've always um i've always if i guess enjoyed imaginative play whether that is with kind of action figures as a kid or running around with my friends you know making up stories about you know even if they're really really simple stories like i'm the I'm the alien and you're the spaceman and it's like simple as that um but when I was 11 I was sitting on a bus and there were these older kids in front of me and they were role-playing on the way to school and I think I just stared at them long enough they eventually noticed me and asked if I wanted to play as well and I said yes and that I think also was a big uh, opener I wonder as well you know um weirdly there was like less to do when I was a kid So, you know, when your uh, cartoon that you like or whatever is on once a week and maybe there's a a Star Trek or something that is on once a week, there's a lot of gulf in between those spaces where you've got to kind of make up your own stories. Um, But in terms of uh, when did I actually start writing, that was more like in my 20s. Although I guess I always liked creative writing at school and that sort of things. So one of my um, random beefs was that when I was um doing english literature at a level they did like an opening bit of the course which was looking at different um poets and writers in different time periods and you studied their work and then you had to try and kind of emulate their work and tell your own stories in their style which i absolutely loved and then the rest of the course was tell us why these writers are really great but you never got to do your own writing and that was much less exciting for me
0: i i find when i've sort of got into schools and taught creative writing with uh, groups of students and stuff like that that there's it's much easier for people to start taking apart other poems when they've had a go at writing them first because then they realize that these things aren't created by sort of semi-mythical creator yeah. gods who just kind of spew them out on the mountain and hand them down they're not perfect crystals they were written by a person who was probably maybe angry that day or <laughs> had just been dumped or or was really you know like doing something like getting a bunch of year nines to look at this is just to say the poem by William Carlos Williams is really easy if you go have you ever had to apologize for something and not really meant it and and they'll go yeah and then you go okay look at this poem what do you think it's about and then they just and then they'll write their own versions obviously the internet is rife with parody but that thing of feeling that you're allowed to be part of it and realizing that stories are communal right because when you're on the bus can I ask what you know because for some people who don't know quite what role playing is that is going to seem like a simultaneously kind of mysterious and completely un-understandable un- un- yeah. what what were they doing what did you hear on the bus okay
1: like- so um they were just literally um there was no so for those some people will think of things like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that um, which I'm very happy to talk about at length, but um in this <laughs> in this case, it was just they were making up stories, there was no system, there were no dice there was no um you know there was a guy who was the, the if you like running the story, the game's master if you like um and there was a guy who was playing and interacting as a as a single character in that story, so for those of you who don't know, i guess role playing is kind of like shared storytelling um And there's lots and lots of different focuses that games can have. And like books and TV and everything else, there's lots of different genres they can be set in. So this was kind of like a fantastical world that came out of this guy's head. And there was a player who was a single character. He'd taken on, a bit like an actor takes on a role in a play. He'd taken on this character and he was exploring this world and going on adventures. And being like the star of his own movie, essentially. Um, And and that, that that was what it was, so...
0: See, that's mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowingly cool. And also, it just seems like something that, you know, when people say, oh, I want to write, but I'm scared. I want to make up stories, but I'm scared. There's some point in our lives where, you know, at least some of us, you know, when we're younger, it's not an intimidating thing at all. Just uh, they weren't there sitting there going, oh, God, is this going to be any good?
1: Yes. my my idea
0: is going to be good enough? I don't know what's going to happen next. There's something really. Ma- I feel the magic that you must have felt in that moment of seeing people do something that is so fundamental to being a human being. You know, working together to make up realities and stories.
1: I think as well. When you, I mean, when you're very young, you don't necessarily you don't worry about if it's going to be good or not, or if it's going to be meaningful or not. You're just doing it because it's fun, and there's a, there's a sort of freedom in that. Um, I think perhaps when we get older there there starts to become more pressure potentially. Or more sense that it should be um I don't know. So I I guess so I was very aware growing up, and I don't think this was like deliberately done to me by my parents at all, or, or anything like that, but there was a, a song by the Petchup Boys, um that there's a line, I think it's in Suburbia, where they say something like, um, Mother's got a hairdo to be done. She says, We're too old for toys. And this idea that you would be too old for toys and too old for play was kind of embedded deeply in my brain. And I think there was a bit, I think we're often told as well that you can't, you know, there's a point where you have to kind of grow up and do a serious work, whatever that is. Um, and obviously, you know, it's important to be able to pay your bills and put food on your table and eat and live and stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. But I think it's a. Sh- it, but the, this sense that you suddenly aren't allowed to have fun and create anymore was something that, for somehow, I don't know why, was in my head. And so for a lot of my early adult life, although I still did creative things, I was always doing them in a. Although, and I know, role played on the side and, and stuff, but I always felt guilty about it in a sense. <laughs> like it was something um to be ashamed of on some weird level um I,
0: that's I, I think that i think a lot of people feel that way and it's it's funny isn't it because it's a very hard position to actually justify when you get down to it why why should adulthood be be one thing and not the other i suppose um i suppose there's this idea that if you get completely that that, that, that if you like enjoy doing play and you enjoy immersing yourself in made-up worlds, then maybe you'll be somehow kind of numb to the out to reality or the outside world. I guess that's the kind of theory behind it, right? That you'll kind of you're, you're, I, the, the extreme view in people's heads is is this idea that you'll be sort of indoors, going, "I am a gallant knight of the of the round and outside." you know, like the, 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 the orphanage is on fire and, and, but you don't know because you're in like the, the idea that you'll numb yourself to the world and won't actually, which is, I just don't think it has any bait. I don't think that extreme view has a basis in reality. Yeah, like, I feel exactly the same way, right? That fear of not wanting, of it being frivolous somehow to be creating.
1: So I think there's, there's, I mean, it's, this, this kind of thing is sort of super nuanced, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I'm, I totally agree. Like, it's very unlikely that I'm going to suddenly jump out of a window because I think I'm a wizard that can fly or some nonsense like that right but at the same time there's a I think like with anything whether it is uh computer games or role playing or a sport or whatever um there is a refuge in it so it's nice you know to leave behind your normal worries of your life and go off and temporarily just have very different worries but that they're not yours so they're much more fun to (laughs) deal with and generally as well you have the tools to deal with them Um, or at least part of the fun is that you can't deal with them and it's like a big angst catharsis thing and that's all fine but I think there is sometimes a danger that you know you can there's a to not face up to things you know if if you can hide too long Um, but I I don't know it's like everything isn't it I mean people always will say things like you know some people will say the internet is terrible when the internet is just a thing that can be good and bad, in the same way that Twitter can be good and bad and etc. etc. et cetera. And I think role-playing is like that and creative play is like that. I think, you know, any extreme position is bad and certainly starving yourself of that, of indulging that creativity, whatever form you like in is bad, is bad for you. You know, whether that's the need to, to paint or the need to dance or whatever. Um I-
0: I, 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 it's, it's. I mean, I guess the, the, the two sides are sort of neatly uh, summarized by, well, like the, the, uh, in Michael Moorcock's um, essay, I, I think it's in Epic Poo, his, uh, <laughs> his kind of big reaction against, um, fan- Epic Fantasy, where he quotes C. S. Lewis, uh, C. S. Lewis defending his own work against charges of escapism by saying, right. "Jailers hate escape." Jailers hate escapists, he says, and Moorcock's re- uh, response to that is, no, jailers love escapists. What they hate is escape. However, yes. both Morcock and C.S. Lewis, I would argue, you know, in kind of the, uh, the history of the rune stuff, both of them are right, right, big, epic fantasies. The more the decision is how you relate to what you're reading, right? Uh, I, rather than whether you should read it at all, uh, I yes. think you're, right. I and mean, I think you're right, absolutely. That like the the truth of it is often this nuanced thing which doesn't roll off the tongue very well. But it's just like, yeah, it's great. Don't don't do it. Don't don't rely on it for everything. Have balance. It's difficult to put that on a pa- placard, right? But it's it's like the most reasonable position.
1: Uh, and the other thing I would say as well is that. There, I think we often divide we, we like as human beings, there's this tendency to put a dividing line where something is one thing or the other. So you know it's like it's real life or it's imaginary life, it's this thing or that thing. But actually, I think that that line is artificial. So you know, when you were kind of talking earlier about the importance of stories and storytelling in our culture, that stories are a way we deal with life, and our life feeds into the creation of story and and that there is a, a constant dialogue between the two. So, you know, I think it's very difficult to write if you are not somehow engaged in life. And you know, and I and I think it's also it's hard sometimes to deal with life if you don't have stories to help you understand or share what other people might be going through. So, you know, I I, I yes. So, oh, we're getting very serious on our first question, but I, that is what I what I believe. You know, even even something where um You've got a fantasy story where, I don't know, these characters are fighting monsters and they are going into weird dark woods and things. Often I think those monsters are versions of the challenges we face in real life, just kind of amped up to the max. You know, that we all have to go to places that might feel dangerous and we all have to deal with people or institutions that we might feel are monstrous or mean us harm and... You know, and, and often a lot of fantasy is about things like growing up or coming to terms with death or fighting for what you believe in. And, you know, yes, we might not be doing it with swords and we might not be doing it um, against ten-headed demons, but we are still having to do it on some level and 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 come to terms with pain and loss, etc. So I think, you know, even the most fantastical stories can still have a kind of a, a real resonance as well.
0: Can I... Uh, sort of move things from th- this um all oh, really interesting stuff by the way thank you I agree I I'm, I'm here nodding but I just didn't want to break up your answer with me going mm, yes oh god that's a brilliant I totally agree I um can we talk a little bit about your uh series which uh, begins with w- comprising uh the vagrant the malice and the seven in in that order I think I'm I mean... saying
1: Yes, I'm always happy to talk about my books. Yeah, totally. Um,
0: yeah, no, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to start actually talking. Uh, maybe you could just, um, for uh, people who haven't uh, read them, uh, give us a little bit of insight into, uh, into how that series starts off and kind of what it deals with.
1: Okay, um, so the Vagrant series is set in a far future world that has suffered a demonic apocalypse and. There is a character who is referred to as the Vagrant, who has what is believed to be humanity's sort of last hope of survival. And he is trying to get to a place called the Shining City. Um, and he is going on this sort of slightly weird journey um, through a dystopian, I guess, fantasy/slash science sci-fi landscape. Um, and the thing about the Vagrant is that he is silent. So he doesn't speak. You don't get to look inside his head um, and he is making his way through this landscape. And uh, with him, uh, his primary companions are a very small baby and a goat who also are not massive conversationalists. I was a fighting, really big fighting...
0: fan of the goat.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. A lot of people are fans of the goat. And we, I mean, we can maybe talk about why that might be um, in a minute. But yes, uh, so essentially it's I think at its heart it is a fantasy book. Um, there are singing swords there are demonic knights there are you know a lot of those sort of fantasy tropes in there and it is a journey very much kind of epic quest if you like um, but it has sort of a sci-fi jacket on in terms of there are also weird kind of types of tanks and flying ships and you know chips in people's brains and things like that as well um, and there's also a little bit of I guess kind of dystopia um, thrown in there as well
0: yeah I, I so the first thing I wanted to say is like it is a, at least at first, and actually this was really interested me as I got through the book. Um, at least at first, it is a really horrible, depressing <laughs> world, and I, I I wanted to ask, what make do you want to write about somewhere where certainly at least at the beginning, at every turn we see bits of hope kind of like flower up only for a boot to kind of stamp down on them. It's it's like pretty things are pretty rotten, right? What made you want to write about a world in that state? I
1: didn't sit down and say, you know what? I want to write about a horrible world. That would be great. Um, I think what happened was I was... um, When the, the character kind of popped into my head and the world grew around that character very rapidly, I think one of the things about a dystopia is that it's threatening. And I wanted this world to be, you know, I wanted this character to be under threat, and I wanted the reader to feel worried for them, you know, um, and also, I- I'm not, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes people call me a grim dark writer, um, and I think that's partly because the world is very dark, but also, it's not without hope entirely. There are shreds of hope in the world. But I guess, uh, I mean, it largely crawled out of my unconscious, and it felt right for the story I was telling, which is not necessarily a clever academic answer. <laughs> it was just kind of how it was. But I guess the, the things that I liked about it was that it that it sets up a lot of threat, and I think sometimes life can feel like that. It can feel hopeless, and it can feel just like what you know. How do you even how do you even navigate? It's not even a case of like oh, we want to do this thing and it's difficult. It's like, how do I even know where to go or where to start or, or what to do? So have um, you
0: felt and... a certain amount have you Do you feel a certain amount of empathy with um, the protagonist, the, the vagrant? I mean, it's difficult because we don't, you know, we don't get access to him. It's a really interesting choice you had that he's almost... It's almost the, the opposite of a third person limited in that we get access to almost everything except him but
1: yes so that that was partly so I decided that he wasn't going to speak and then w- pretty soon after I made that decision I decided that if we could hear inside his thoughts that would take away from the kind of the the impact of him not speaking because you would still be having a, a, a kind of dialogue as the reader with him um, and I've seen that done in some books brilliantly where you have a character who maybe is very shy But you're hearing their thoughts and you're getting that contrast between how the others see them and how they are feeling. But I didn't want that here. I kind of wanted one of the hooks of the book to be, who is this guy? And having to judge him by his actions and for the reader to decide if they liked him or not and to kind of wonder why he was doing the things he was doing. Um, I'm not sure... Sorry, I'm not sure if that answered your question.
0: Yeah, no, it it really... really, To me, like, the vagrant feels like he... Obviously, like whenever you're reading something, you kind of like end up jumping to kind of like your nearest kind of like cultural beacons and kind of like putting a yes. hook here and a hook here. So he, I, I, you know, I was very minded of not that he's the, not that he's the same, but it gave, I was getting, I think, because of the landscape as well. Like Ken Shiro in um, Fist of the North Star, as oh, this blimey. kind of like guy just wandering out of the wasteland, yeah, and I, I seeming think I very threatening. That...
1: Yeah, I wanted a little bit of that kind of lone samurai or lone gunslinger feel going through this kind of threatening landscape. And one of the other things, I think, because I was fairly recently a father at the time, that struck me was that it was quite unusual to have a very young child in a fantasy story. And that often when you did have a baby in fantasy, they would be like the chosen baby that would levitate or would be able to you know, immediately talk to people or communicate with emotions or something. So they weren't like a normal baby, they were magic. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wanted, I, I, I guess, you know, there's, and no doubt people listening to the podcast will suddenly say, no, there are millions of books with babies in, you fool. And they'll list a load of really amazing books I haven't read. But I think often with, when you're writing, we often write for the thing that we want that maybe we haven't seen and that might just be my limited experience but at the time I hadn't seen many non-magical babies in books <laughs> particularly fantasy books and so I kind of I wanted to go there with that
0: and it immediately creates a really exciting uh tension right yeah. and not not just not just because oh will the baby get hurt but also because it creates a bunch of logistical problems right where he's got to feed the baby right like as as you know as you'll know as as, as a dad like there's There's a lot you have to think of. The idea of going to a festival with my daughter when she was sort of three months old would be, I can't think of anything I'd less rather do. So crossing, uh, you know, a a continent on foot um, and while finding food, while surrounded by hostiles, it immediately creates more tension in the book. And also, I think what I wanted to say about it, not, well, it depends on your definition of grimdark, but for me, although it's a very dystopian landscape although it's very threatening um i don't think it's cynical the world that's one thing that i really felt going through it that when something nasty happens to someone there are nice people who get hurt uh, but those nice people exist um and it's an inimical uh environment that they exist in but there are people we, and then you have lovely moments you know with the um is she called the hammer that walks yeah um you know that there's there's some really touching uh, moments, or and they're they're shot through with oh my gosh this horrible thing has happened to someone, but we see people change and we see people develop, and it's not just a crapsack world where you know you're either a sucker or a bastard, and there's no in between. Either you are going to be like ripped off and backstabbed by someone, or you are the backstabber. There
1: yeah, are, there I, are I th- good people. Yes, I think that's the thing. You know, uh, I, I guess I don't want someone to read a book and then come to the end of it and just think, oh, why did I slog through all those pages? And but my life feels so depressing now. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm certainly willing to hurt my characters and maybe bump a few off and that kind of business. But, it, but I also, it depends on the kind of book, right? Some people love, they love those really cynical, super dark experiences, Um, But for me, I don't know, I I feel like, you know, you're on a journey and there is some kind of contract. There will be some kind of meaning or some kind of hope or some kind of reward at the end. Even if it's not what the character thought they were going to get or maybe what the reader thinks is going to happen. There's still going to be something. You're left with something at the end of it that is not just woe (laughs) and misery
0: what do you think, what's important, because the world, world building in um, these books is, oh man, I just, I started reading The Vagrant and I was like two pages in and I was like, I knew that I was going to love it. I knew, Aww. I was just like, I was reading it and I was going, oh, this is cool. Oh, that's, oh, what's happening with that dog's eye? Like, I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but there's, it's full of innovation and, and just cool, rich details that are just part of the world the naming of the characters the uncivil is such a cool name <laughs> Yeah, I love like um, it. A bit. but I, I wanted to, to sort of like what is your process for world building or, and what's important to you when you are creating these worlds for your characters because you said it started with the character of the vagrant and then the world you had to like assemble like a little world for him to live in almost yeah how, I mean it all, very,
1: it all happened very close together so when the Vagrant popped into my head, certain things about the world immediately came into place. Um, Not the whole thing, but certain key details. So funnily enough, um, things like the Seven came in pretty early on in a vague format. Um, And the Demons and the kind of, just the feel. And then a lot of the other stuff was very painstakingly worked out as I went along. So one of the other things is that Different projects have very different processes attached to them, so I don't work the same way for everything. But for the vagrant, it was kind of like um, you know, if you you know this this kind of theory with some sculptors where they would say you know there's this big block of rock and there is a shape within that rock and they are just uncovering the shape. Mm. So that sounds a bit pretentious, doesn't it? But that's sort of what it was with the vagrant. In that I knew I I knew it when I got it, and I knew the I knew the feel. And I had always a, a kind of intuitive sense of what I wanted to do in terms of the world and details. But I didn't always know exactly what it was. And sometimes I would have to chip very slowly, kind of like line by line. So it was a bloody slow book to write. Um, but it was, uh, I was very much like a bricklayer with that book. So I would take, a, like, I'd take a, if you like, a sentence or a word or a paragraph... And I would very like line it up really carefully and I'd place it down and have a little look at it from a few angles and be like, mm, yeah, have a little adjustment. Yeah, that's right. And then i had gone to the next one. So what that meant was the first draft took absolutely ages, but there wasn't huge amounts of rewriting to do. You know, it was a pretty clean first draft when it was done.
0: So were you um, making up bits of the world on the fly then? Did you were you like setting down a line and going, oh, he's going to turn here and he's just gone into this new yeah, so town, And he looks here. I wonder what's in it. Well, I'll have a think and think what could be in it. Was that how you were putting the world together? Were you kind of discovering it almost as he did?
1: Sort of. So um, there were some things, like I say, I knew early on and certain key scenes or moments that were like. So when I've talked about it in the past, it's a bit like if you imagine like a hilly landscape that's got a really heavy fog. So you can just see the tops, of the hills. So there were some of the bigger hills where I could be like, I know that I'm going to end up on top of that hill at some point in this book. Mm. and then I know that from there I'm going to end up on that other hill over there and blah, 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 and at the end I'm going to end up at this point. I can see my end goal, but to get to that hill I've got to descend down into the mists and kind of figure it out. Um, So it was very much like that, particularly for the first book because that was establishing a lot of the world. I mean, the other thing I should say, though, is that um, I've got a background, I guess, in lots and lots of role-playing and running games, so there is a bit of my brain that is... You know, things I had very early on that I didn't play with were things like the metaphysics and, you know, how how the demons work and how things like the seven work and stuff like that. Um, I knew right from the get go because the thing that, in a way, once you've got your rules set up, so you say, okay, I know I know how these things can interact and I know what they can and can't do ultimately then you can pretty much play within those rules in any way you want, as long as you don't break that, you know. Because because then you have internal consistency in the book. That's the key thing, I think.
0: I wanted but, to say that you have, like, what something that I found really interesting reading through it, and I think this is, you know, established really early on, so it's not uh, like a major spoiler for the book, but, you know, that this uh, rift opens up in the ground and yes. demons have poured out and kind of swarmed over... Uh, the world in a pretty one-sided battle but something you establish quite early on is that they are by no means uh a kind of like unified uh uh, completely they're not just not just interchangeable demons that actually there are factions and there are power struggles and intrigue amongst them and also that being in the world is not their natural environment and it's immediately being flesh and in the world and out of this rift is uncomfortable and draining for them and I find it I find it weird actually <laughs> but really interesting that to a certain extent when I had these moments from the demon's perspective I don't know if I was feeling sympathy for them but like there's a bit where you feel a bit of tension like oh is he going to be all right? You know, like, it's it's interesting how he's getting into their heads and seeing their concerns. that um, this is not an easy... W- There's not just, like, a faceless kind of, like, darkness sweeping across the yeah. land. That These have got personalities,
1: right? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there are different kinds of villain in a book that can serve different purposes. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be really fun to have, like, a moustache twirling proper... Really horrible villain that you know is the really, You just want to see go down, and that is the thrill. You know that every time they do something horrible, you're like, "Oh god, I hate that guy!" <laughs> and then finally, they get their comeuppance, and you're kind of dancing around the room, yay! But I think with this, you know, it's a. I think it's one of the ideas, I guess, or the themes that I was playing with about, you know, that the, there aren't many clearly obvious heroes or villains that people just people are surviving. And survival is ugly. And, and that there are kind of good and bad ways to survive, i.e. There are, there are ways that are more ethical to survive and ways that are less ethical. And that's probably about as far as it goes. Um, and it's also a world which, to some, some extent, has lost its certainty. You know, the, the old systems of government and the old things they believed in, to some extent, have been shattered by the arrival of the demons. And actually, reality has been attacked. You know, it's not just that there are demons in the world... The ecosystem is being warped by this kind of, by the taint that is washing out with them. So, yeah, I I guess these are all things I wanted to play with.
0: Yeah, because there's definitely people who've been affected by that, who have got, you know, this taint on them, but are also still people. Yeah, exactly. And that thing of like, how do we, because that's how I felt at the beginning, is it's like, okay, over here are these demons, uh, over here are the kind of like final kind of warriors of, of of good, perhaps, and then as we go on, those categories get blurred in a way yes. that it's not just like okay you're, you're evil, so I want to see you destroyed you' and, and i found that I found that tension actually quite yeah I found it quite troubling as well, you know that I was immediately going, "Oh well, those are baddies. oh no wait, hang on
1: oh, no, oh gosh yeah, I mean i don't know. I don't know how much I kind of sat down with like a clever plan, you know, I think I just wanted to write a story, but when we're talking about it in the abstract and, you know, with a few years of hindsight, I do feel as well that maybe there's a sort of reflection of well of society, you know, that I think things are uh, that, that perhaps, and and again, I might be doing a disservice to the past, but I feel like in the past there was a tendency to have narratives of good and evil and it be very clean lined you know these guys are bad, and they are just bad. And these guys are good, and they are just good. And I feel that perhaps in our kind of modern society, where I think a lot of these assumptions are being questioned, that it's all there's also a place in fantasy to question those assumptions as well.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I think it makes it. I think, and it just makes good storytelling, right? Yeah. That's one of the things is not is a lack of certainty creates possibility and or out of possibility branch all these different storylines right because as soon as you don't quite know who to trust uh that that stories rise out of that and intrigue and excitement so i i wanted to just very quickly ask you about we're always told this kind of thing show don't tell show don't tell that any information about the world should Mm be sort of snuck in in a way that we don't Uh, see but often in your writing you you just kind of go oh here's a cool thing uh that the person sees and it means this or here's a little bit of history or you'll do like a quick flashback and say this is what happened that got us here and I was kind of (laughs) I was kind of shocked at how well that worked that you just like give me a little a bit of local fate flavor really unfussily in one or two sentences I was like neat and then the story moved on and I just wanted to ask how you think about managing that balance, how writers you know, manage that balance between keeping the story moving and following our characters and giving us information about the world so we can appreciate the stakes and what's going on and also learn cool stuff about the world.
1: OK, so I think generally speaking, what I try to do is is kind of break the world into kind of bite-sized chunks and... And that some of that world building is being shown through tiny details in the world, you know, in an environment's description or the way a character acts or what they're, how they're dressed or what they say. But then sometimes as well, there are bits of information that you just want to give to the reader. And yeah, I mean, I've heard this advice too about show, don't tell. And like all writing advice, you have to take it with a pinch of salt, because if you go and look, you will find writers that tell in a masterful manner. You know, and they'll have a whole page or two pages dedicated to telling you about a concept. But if they do it in a way that is sexy enough, that's fine. You know, um, and it's about efficiency. You you know, if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to tell the reader that, I don't know, um, there's a particular kind of technology in the world, you might be able to show that very elegantly in the way a character collects water for the day or something like that where it's just, they're talking about other things, there's other action in the scene, but they do this and it just tells the reader loads of stuff. But sometimes the most efficient way to get that concept across is just to spend a paragraph describing how the water system works in that city. And it might be four lines or six lines. You know, it is a, it is nothing in terms of the overall scope of the book. But it tells the reader a lot of stuff they might need for later. Uh, So I'm, you know, writing advice I'm always really wary of because... You know, because it, uh, there are so many different writers out there and so many different readers out there that, you, you know, you just do what works. I mean, having said that, I try to avoid long kind of hefty pages of exposition where I'm just saying, you know, and, and there were like six cities and each one had its own thing. And the first one had this one and the second one, had you know, I don't, I don't want the reader to be too bogged down.
0: Yeah, you don't and, have And ideally
1: holes. I guess I want I want their experience of the world to be embedded in the character's experience of the world and always relevant to the story.
0: Yeah, so oft- often you'll just have like a moment where we see something monstrous or scary and you'll give us it, it, it almost feels I tell you what it feels like, it feels like um it feels like we've like hired uh, a kind of uh, a wily guide to this world who's <laughs> just saying like don't make eye contact with that guy he's one of the city guards and um he'll be able to you know he, he can she can shoot mind lasers uh that don't worry about that um winged monkey it's perfectly safe unless you uh show fear in which case it might try to eat your face you know it feels like someone is just like going through the world pointing out um little moments of interest yes. and danger as and when we need them and other stuff, we'll get to that once we've got through this bit alive.
1: I think it's a very difficult question as well about how much detail to give because different writers do it very differently, you know. And there are some fantasy writers that are really good at describing a meal at a feast hall. But they, of course, won't just be describing the meal. They'll also be describing the culture and they'll be describing perhaps the status of the characters and all kinds of other things. But it'll be beautiful. They'll be, you know, pheasant and special herbs mixed with honey that are sprinkled over some potatoes or whatever it is and it's beautiful Um, and when they describe characters they'll give you you know five paragraphs of everything from their toenails to their you know to the hairs on their arms whereas I guess with my with those books I tended to try and give just enough detail like a bit like um, if you watch an artist where they draw a line and you're like, what's that? And they draw a second line. You're like, what's that? And they draw a third line. You're like, oh, it's Mickey Mouse, you know. (laughs) But that you as the viewer kind of, you see the shape and then you, that gives you the thing and then you just kind of fill the rest in with your mind. I guess that's what I was hoping to do with those books, that I'm giving you enough that you can imagine this thing, but hopefully a lot of it is happening in your imagination as well.
0: Yeah. And I'd say that there's like you also tend to pick your battles with what you describe in that yeah. there's one or two things that you'll describe in quite like rich detail. Yes. Like when we, when they get kind of pulled into the um, into the traders like back room and there's like a very uh, a, a very kind of like gross kind of like <laughs> squashed mattress yes. uh, there and, and stuff. Um that you have like these moments and that's suggestive of all sorts of stuff that is going to be, we fill in the rest of the room around it. Or, you know, you describe the kind of uh, just like one of a group of uh, sort of uh, demons or monsters and we just get one little moment of um, like luxurious detail and then that serves for the, that gives a whole tone and flavour and feel to the scene and then we fill in the rest
1: yeah that's certainly that's certainly what I'm hoping for <laughs> so Yeah, oh, I'm no, glad I mean, it sounds like that's what you got
0: yeah no like I, I did yeah and I know I just I'm just really jealous because I'm an awful overwriter and I'm an awful kind of like oh well let's describe all the different uh trees and I'll describe the and I just go on and on and I and it's or if you just, it just, it's like walking through treacle just to get to anything happening in the sea. Because but I'm then like...
1: I guess, you know, it's horses for courses as well. You know, some readers want that level of detail and they want to enjoy it like a kind of 3D world that they're walking through and they can look at every blade of grass. Um, and, and also, of course, you can edit it. I mean, interestingly, The Vagrant as well started as a writing exercise because I used to write very dialogue-heavy stuff but I was very poor at describing the environment that it was happening in. So you'd have these kind of like vivid, engaging conversations happening in a kind of white box that could be anywhere. And I wanted to, I wanted to take away that crutch of dialogue. And also I was trying to tell stories at the time through the dialogue rather than telling the story and having dialogue with it. So, you know, I would sort of say that sometimes these things, like if you say, Oh, I do this thing and it's really bad that that can often be the thing that spurs you to write something really good and every book you know so like with the vagrant there are things that I as a writer felt that I could do better that I tried to beat in the malice and then tried to do again better in the seven and then when I finished that trilogy and we we might talk about this I guess in more detail later but that writing style means it's good for doing some things and it's bad for doing other things and so I felt that I wanted to try and again up my game in a different way, for the for the new one. So, yeah, I, I think I it's wanna, an ongoing process, really.
0: I I think I I, I just want to say how because I know for the listeners, I just wanna I just want to emphasize how great I think your advice is that um you, that you it's often there's a different process that's appropriate for different projects. I think a lot of time that doesn't get talked about. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I think that's such a excellent piece of advice that not every the prescription for different books is not always the same i think that's such a good point because people often you know why should you write a crime thriller the same way you write a, a historical piece of literary yeah fiction? exactly
1: and even if you're writing in the same genre the things you might be trying to achieve might be different you might have changed as a writer um you know i think there's a danger when you have lots of people talking about a thing like a craft that you can feel that there's a right or a wrong way to do it, and I think ultimately you just do it. So you know, if we, you've just been talking about the vagrant, for example, and you've been very kind in what you said. But if people go online on the internet, they will find a, a great mixture of comments about that book. You know, some people will also have liked it, but a large number of people will have said, "No, I that that style completely turned me off." You you know, you cannot please everybody um you cannot write for everybody so you know at the end of the day you just kind of write the best you can for whatever you're doing and and you and you hope that you'll connect with somebody you know that the right people will hopefully find your book and will enjoy it and there'll also be people for, for whom that book is no good and that's fine you know that's just the way it is
0: um you i just wanted to um go back to something that you mentioned that sure. uh that we could like return to that now i'm fascinated by which is why you think people so, in this story, you've got the, the the vagrant he's uh he's carrying a a baby with him while sort of trying to stay out of trouble and occasionally fighting his way out of trouble, but he's also um acquires a goat very early on um wh- who provides milk but is also very uh stubborn and very full of personality and you you said you, you said you mentioned we could maybe talk about why you said that for, you found that readers quite enjoyed that character and i was wondering okay, what so your the, thoughts the, are on that
1: sure well there's there's different reasons really i think one is that the goat is horrible so i when i was coming up with the goat that the milk was one of the key things i needed an animal that i felt would be tough enough to have not been ruined by the the changes to society and the two things the two animals that popped into my head or the creatures that i thought would be pretty tough and unfazed by the arrival of the demons were goats and cockroaches and I just couldn't... (laughs) Cockroach milk, man. I just thought, no, I can't go there. And also, I didn't feel like I'd write a kind of interesting character for Cockroach. I think that kind of thing probably is the province of people like Adrian Tchaikovsky. So, um, yeah, so I decided to go with goats. and I thought as well that... Often in fantasy, you have, like, the, the noble steed or the heroic hound or whatever that supports the hero. And in this book, which is a much kind of grimmer book, I kind of wanted... I wanted something that was kind of as much a hindrance as a help. <laughs> so as to why people like the goat, the goat is a bit of a shit, if you, if you don't mind me saying. And I think people enjoy that because it's funny. Um, but the other thing is, is that the goat, in a world where many of the humans have lost hope and are struggling, the goat is refreshingly at ease. You know, the goat, for, life is the same for the goat as it was a few years ago. It still wants the things it wants. Some people occasionally get in the way in the kicking or biting... And that's that, and all this. And, and the goat doesn't care about the needs of humanity. It doesn't care about how civilization has fallen. It just wants to have a nice thing to eat, have a nice place to sleep, and do what it wants. And I think there's a kind of a fun in that because you know we often do the right thing as people constrained by society. So I think it's quite fun watching a creature that does just does not care. I think that's why cats are often very popular as well, because so- a they look super cute, and b. They are kind of like, they, they revel in their own selfishness in a way that I think a lot of us wish we could. Um, so, yeah, I think as well, it, in, a, in a book that is grim, you need to lighten, you need to have contrast as well. And the goat is one of those points of contrast. Because it the also goat helps us humor. have
0: emotional it also tricks us into feeling emotionally invested, right? Because there'll yeah. be like a, a bit that's funny and we'll go, okay, I don't mind opening my heart to this story because it's funny because the goat's, the goat's struggling and, and pulling and, and dragging him over here and he needs it not to do that. This is a funny bit of farce. And then um, moments later, something, you know, a, a family will be under threat. Someone we like, is is, is, is their lives in danger. And it's like, oh, it's too late. You you cared about this goat, so now you're in for the ride. I'm afraid. Like I, I think that's yeah. a really, really. I don't want to call it a trick, but it is a kind of like nice tool to have in your arsenal. Something that makes us go, okay, okay, I'll engage with
1: this. I think the thing as well is if we think about our own response to things in in the world. If you are relentlessly hit by the same thing, let's say trauma or horror, after a while you can't cope with any more. You know, so you become kind of numb to it, and. So you need sometimes a break in the horror or a break in that awfulness, almost to cleanse your palate <laughs> and, yeah. and soften you up for the next the next round of, of difficulty. And, and also, again, I think if you know th- life isn't just one tone; it's it's mixed. And, and even even the t- even the, probably the worst of lives probably still had a few moments where someone laughed or someone had a moment of pleasure, even if it was very scarce. You know. It will have been there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think I think I, I I kind of feel from you know what you're what you're saying that you you feel like uh, that scariness or grim darkness or whatever you want to call it for you is less a genre and more a strategy, uh, a tone, <laughs> a a story uh, uh, engine.
1: I guess, I mean, people talk about Grimdark a lot and it means a lot of different things to different people, but I tend to just take it as it's, it's a world in which there is not a kind of predestined fate where all the good guys are going to win. And it is a world where potentially the characters are flawed. For, for better or worse. Hmm. And that if you like, life is more real. So, you know, in, in our kind of high fantasy, often we don't worry about people going to the toilet and we don't worry about you know, um cleaning bloodstains of carpets so much. There's a slightly more elevated, um more epic scope. But I feel like with Grimdark you get the you get the gritty stuff as well. Um but that's not to, and, and within that again there's a huge spectrum, you know, there is that as you mentioned earlier, that kind of scumbags and cynics and suckers kind of thing. Um but I like to I'm probably slightly softer or, or more hopeful than that.
0: I, I I really like your idea of this idea of the the goat being kind of uh, uh, like a kind of jester character, a kind of critique of mm. humanity. Like the and the goat doesn't. I love that idea that the goat possibly hasn't noticed that there's been
1: an apocalypse. Well, you know, from a goat's point of view, who cares? It's there just, are always a, there are always threats. There are always things hunting you. You don't you know whether one is a demon or a hunter. I mean, who cares?
0: I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah.
0: So can we just... I wanted to move on to your new novel, uh, The Deathless. Yes. Um, which, like, on one level feels very removed from the grubby post-apocalyptic wastelands of um, the Vagrant and uh, uh, the Malice and, and the seven But on the other hand, you know, because we have these, like, fine towers and courtly intrigue. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think there definitely are some connections. And yep. definitely that world of... Uh, of wonder and uh a, a, a sort of beautiful order is is not quite as as perfect as it as it might initially seem can you talk us give us a little intro to it talk us through it a bit
1: i certainly can so something i've been saying to me i really should sort out because the book comes out very soon but um is that i don't have my pithy one-line pitch for the book but i can certainly ramble about why you know what was in my head when i was writing. i'd
0: love it. i'd love you to that's, per- that's perfect that's
1: um, so there were two kind of main ideas or things that were kind of inspiring me at the time. Um, and the first one was, you know, those old kind of Grimm's fairy tales where, mm-hmm. you know, there are, you know, if you, if you stray off the path or if you go out at night or you don't obey the kind of the rules of being careful when you're travelling, bad things will happen to you. And that the woods at night, you don't go in them because they are scary places and strange things live in the woods. I kind of wanted to capture a bit of that because, again, there's many fantasy where the woods are scary. But um, sometimes because our heroes are kind of in armies or have wizards and all this kind of thing, you know, they have all the tools to deal with it. And I wanted this sense of people who were just living in fear and were very careful about how they existed. And then the other big idea was that I, I wanted these immortals, but I wanted them to, when they died to reincarnate through the bodies of their own descendants so you can call back their soul into the world but it has to come into their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren as a thing Um, and then I wanted to tie these together into an ecosystem Uh, sorry excuse me one sec so yeah I wanted to tie these together into an ecosystem so you you have these people called the Roadborn. there there are these god roads which are kind of safe pathways and they live there Um, but they to to farm and to get the, the things needed for life they have to venture into the dangerous wilds a little bit and they send their food and things up to the castles of the deathless but sometimes the demons will notice them and then you know one kid will play too far on the edge of the village and go missing or you know granny will be snatched from her home at night or whatever and then the village will call for help and the deathless will come down from their flo- from their floating castles and they will hunt the demons and there's that kind of ecosystem of you know uh, each keeping the other kind of in check and looking after the other in some sense and then obviously in the book that ecosystem is then threatened and th- and that's where we get fun and drama and action
0: y- yeah it it kind of it, it it it's almost like this very pure version of how when you kind of like read uh Gibbon's Decline and Fall and Tacitus and people you know talking about the barbarians versus civilization uh it feels like a very pure form of that to me when I was reading it and also but also that while there is this kind of danger and wildness in the woods in the when you stray away from uh civilization there's also there's also a kind of dark allure to it. Is that is that fair? That's how, you
1: know what. Well, are... the thing is, is that that you know that a lot of the rare herbs and things that can be used for drugs and medicine and like the nicest treats are in those woods. So you can make your fortune by going into those woods. You know, there's that kind of side of things, and that certainly. Um, I think there's always a thing which kind of might tempt you to go out there even though it's dangerous. And of course some of the creatures within the woods are alluring. You know, they may be massively threatening but they're also tempting as well.
0: Yeah, I I I I really <coughs> and this is, and, and this I guess in what way is your process different di- did your process differ in writing the, the deathless because this story has a lot of different demands there are in the most interesting sense, politics, there are, you know, there's a lot of power accrued in a small number of people, uh, all of whom, you know, it reminds me a lot of the kind of old, uh, sort of, uh, Chinese, uh, courtly sagas as well, where there's all these, these different groups and there's power. And then there's a lot of mythos that these groups have built kind of around themselves to justify why they should stay in power. Um,
1: And I wonder what
0: the demands of this were compared to writing uh, a sort of uh, a a world where you're following one character through and they've got a very clear mission in in this. When we start, there's a definite status quo and the characters are trying to act to well, most of the characters are trying to act to maintain that status quo.
1: Yeah. um, So I think one of the things probably worth mentioning here is the strangeness of moving to a new trilogy because... By the time I was writing the seven, i.e. book three, of the Vagrant series, I'm very comfortable in that world and those characters, and I, I feel like I know what I'm doing and I've got my voice. And it's a nice place to be. And with this new book, I it, you know, there's that sense of you have to you have to leave that safe place and go somewhere new. Because whilst it's very tempting, you know, I could write a thousand books in the in the vagrant world. Actually, I told the story of those characters and I'd done what I wanted to do there and I think there's a danger as a writer that you can kind of stagnate and end up doing the same thing so one of the other things that happened as well is that I'd read other writers and been excited by things they were doing and thinking oh I want to try and do a bit of that um so one of the things about the vagrant series is that you're often slightly removed you know you're watching uh, this thing play out in front of you um and I wanted in this book to get really close into the characters' heads and I wanted you to have a... I guess one of the things was I'd read um, a lot of Robin Hobb for the first time. And, and the thing about Robin Hobb that I love, not only that she's a brilliant writer, but her characters are beautifully portrayed and they're all flawed and they're all really interesting. And, you know, they could be doing anything and I'm kind of with them, you know, like they could be washing the dishes and I'd be like, oh, how interesting... Um, no, no characters watched the issues in, in the Deathless, I should say, but uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But I wanted, <laughs> but I wanted there to be a, a much kind of more intimate relationship between the reader and the characters than I had before. So that placed different demands, and also there's a lot of you know going back to that world building thing. There's a lot of stuff to get across to the reader because there's different levels of the culture that you can be in, you know, and there are different lives that you can have um and there's the different crystal houses there's the rules that govern them the rules that govern how they interact with each other there's the rules of the hunt and dealing with the demons there's the roadborn there's all there's loads of stuff um so and again it was it was finding elegant ways to communicate that stuff um so yeah there were a lot of different challenges
0: yeah, and I, I, and what's your i just wonder what your how in the most sort of literal sense how do you... So, Keith, okay, you, you, you know, you finish The Seven. You have, you know, your the, your wonderful, safe world that you knew. It doesn't need you anymore. It's just out there. And you're going to start writing The Deathless. So you're just in front of a blank page again. Did you yeah, start I making mean, I'm, notes? I'm, just, what, what I'm very lucky
1: but... because... Sorry to cut you off, but I'm very lucky in so far as that I'm married to and live with another writer. So... Yes, I'm faced with a blank page, but I also have a a um, a friendly ear where I can go and have a coffee or something and I can say, oh, you know, I've got these vague ideas bouncing around my head and just chat. A bit like, um, if you ever watch House on TV and he's trying to figure out what's wrong with, he's just so, that's a show about a sort of genius doctor, but sometimes he's trying to figure out what's wrong with someone and he's there with these other doctors and they're bouncing ideas around about, you know... What are the symptoms that we know and what could this actually be? And you start kind of narrowing it down to to what it is. And there's a similar process in a way here in that I might have various ideas of things I want to do that are really random. So in this case, it's like, well, I kind of like the idea of really spooky woods and Grimm's tales and kind of that stranger just off the path that's beckoning you and all that stuff. But I also really like the idea of people in magical suits of flying crystal armour. And, you know, I also like the idea of these kind of slightly weird immortals. And I quite like the idea of what would it be like if you're like the chosen vessel of one of these immortals, which means that at some point you're just going to get rubbed out by this immortal taking over your body. That's that's kind of cool, right? And then, and like, and and, but this society is geared up for this to be great, but what if you don't think it's great? Or what if you do think it's great? And what if you're the mother or the father of that character? And, you know, so you kind of have all these things. And there are other, there were other things too that I had around at the time. And then gradually some of those ideas feel like they can lock together. And some of those ideas don't and get dropped. And maybe we'll come up in another book one day. And then once you've got the hub of the things you want to do, then it's like, well, okay, what... So with The Vagrant, I had The Vagrant first. And with The Deathless, I think I had some of the concepts in the world first. And then some of the characters started to appear in response to that. Um, And
0: and then, so I. Because you. So I think. um, Like The Vagrant. Was it. Was it published in 2015? Yes. No, is that? And then. So since then, you've done a book every year. It's 2018 now, and this is your. Like, fourth massive novel is coming out. So. I, and, and this is does come if you notice a kind of like uh, a slightly plaintive tone in my voice or indeed the crying starts now then <laughs> there, there's no accent but what, what what's your secret because you have written four books of um of of increasing quality uh oh. over four years uh you're continuing to do so so you're like you know relatively consistent but you're challenging yourself you're moving through different worlds you you know i, I should say in the, the vagrant series it covers quite a sort of a span of uh, uh of different characters and time as well and you know the situation uh develops It's not purely episodic um how how have you managed to to navigate that because i'm sure like anyone listening but mainly i'm asking for selfish reasons how are you Managing to turn up and write stuff. Do you, you know, Do you suffer with self-doubt? And if you do, how do you how have you got past that?
1: Okay, so this is a a fairly huge question. Sorry, yeah. But no, no, it's fine. I just want to mention that it's going to take a while to. There are different aspects within that question that that I kind of want to address. Um, so the first thing is, I think when you whenever you look on the outside another writer's career, you can just think, "Oh my God, how is that?" how is that possible or how are they doing these things? But the thing is, is that you only ever see the kind of victories of that writer's career. You know, you only see the book after it's gone through all of the different iterations, the editing, the copy edits, you know. There's a there's a huge amount of stuff that, that a reader never sees. They just see the polished book when it arrives. And the thing to note, of course, is that I was writing The Vagrant long before 2015. Um, You know, I was writing it in 2013 and maybe 2012, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, because it was probably late 2013 that I submitted it. And then it was worked on over that time. Um, And I started writing The Malice and had written The Malice before The Vagrant came out. And so if you like most writers start slightly ahead of the game because you if you're going the traditionally published route which I did um, you know a publisher will not look at just the first chapter of your book normally until you finish the whole thing so they might say I just want to see the first chapter or three chapters but they won't but they will want you to have already finished the book by the time that happens Um, and that's certainly true of agents and so when I was in the submissions process that, you know, that already existed. So yes, a book has come out every year and I've written a book every year, but I, if you like, I had a book in the bag when I started and I've always kind of maintained that. So I've been writing, um, and you know, I've written other things as well. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but like I wrote a, a, a tie in novel for a computer game, um, which came out in 20, I don't know, 16. Um, and I've written, there's a, there's a Wild Cards book that I'm writing for them, but that's a no, sort of novella length. There are various bits and bobs that came out around it. And it seems like a lot, but actually when it's spread out, you know, that we often write out of sight and then we suddenly turn up with this finished thing, ta-da! Yeah. It can seem incredible, but actually there's a lot of time involved between, between that. Um, so that's one aspect of what you asked. And you also asked about, do I suffer from writer's block? And that's a very interesting question, so I do want to answer that. So the answer is sort of. So it used to be that I would be writing and then suddenly it would get like harder and harder to write, you know, in a particular story. And I'll be slowing down and maybe i would be putting more effort into writing slides, I'd be like squeezing the words out, you know. And I used to just think, oh, you know, I'm blocked, I'm rubbish. And what I tend to think now, actually, is that that's not, there's normally a reason why I'm slowing down. And, and it might be because there's something I haven't figured out yet. And actually, what I'm doing is I'm getting closer and closer to the point where this thing I've figured out yet is going to be a problem. And if I don't address it, I'm not going to be able to go on. And a bit of me knows that. And so the, the words are drying up because I haven't I haven't, sorted, I haven't laid down my foundations yet. Sometimes I'll get blocked or I'll slow down because I've written a scene and it's not right. And it's not good enough. And again, I kind of know that, but I haven't admitted it to myself. So my first thing, if, I, if I'm struggling to write, I might just think, well, am I tired? You know, I've actually been writing for days and I haven't had a break. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'll kind of allow myself to have a quick break if that's the case but if that doesn't resolve the problem then the next thing is well why and often there is a cause and if I if I take time to work that out and I should say if I, you know I won't always have the answer instantly myself I might have to go for a walk I might have to go do something else I might have to have a long chat with Emma about it um, but normally there is something that will come out that I've just been too rubbish to deal with and once I deal with that then I'll get excited again and the words will flow and I guess the, the last thing as well to say is sometimes we can be kind of victims of our own planning. So I might have planned out that I'm going to write a particular scene in a particular order. and then But by the time I've got to that scene, actually what's happened in the writing has changed. And that plan is no longer fully relevant. So I'm suddenly writing kind of up against the flow of what I've just put down. And then I need to decide, well, actually, do I like what I've written more or do I like what I've planned more? What's going to be better? And then make the decision to kill one or other and then move on.
0: Because sometimes when you're doing those plans, you're kind of you've got this kind of eagle eye view of the story. But then when you're down kind of like in the tavern brawl with the character, you look around and go, well, there's an open window just there. Isn't he just going to dive through that instead of running to get or? Oh, he can see the person is, is there behind the bar. He's not yeah. going to leave them there. He's not going to run away. He's going to go and save them. There's stuff that becomes, so I guess, more obvious to you when you're in the scene with the character, right?
1: Yes. And also, there's a whole load of other things that come into play as well. Like, what's the feel in the scene? You know, if you've just had a scene of high drama or comedy or what have you, does it now feel right to do this thing you were going to do? And so it, yeah it's it's kind of like what's realistic for the characters in that tavern brawl, but also what's in terms of mood, what feels right for the story at this point? you know do you need to suddenly change the feel or do you want to maintain it or and you may not know that until you're writing it so
0: yeah, I think that's a really I think that's such good advice, and that thing of um just thinking about that that thing of acknowledging that uh there's something i've you were saying that, and I was just here going, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened to me with my last book. There was there were bits that I hadn't worked out what this character's power were, was or what the secret <laughs> MacGuffin was and I wouldn't acknowledge it to myself and I kept writing slower and slower because I was approaching this kind of void of crackling static and I was scared of addressing it because I was thinking subconsciously and I wouldn't acknowledge it to myself. What if I haven't got a good answer? This whole project is screwed. And you're right, you have to... But it's always better to actually acknowledge that and have a think and go for a walk and actually, because your mind will come up with something. I think the uh, other thing
1: that is a bit of a trap is that, for me, nothing beats the feeling of having written a new scene and put new words down. And on some level in my brain, my brain thinks that is the only thing that counts in terms of making progress. Whereas actually, I could spend an afternoon or most of a day just working out a structural thing or a metaphysical thing or a plot hole or what have you and that is still work that can be every bit as important as the writing but to my writer's ego it doesn't feel the same it doesn't have the same weight so where this can be tricky is if you're writing a book sometimes you can feel like well I've just got to write I've got to write my thousand words or two thousand words or whatever it is and if I don't do that I'm a failure as a writer but sometimes that isn't the work that needs doing the work that needs doing is kind of ironing out your plot hole or whatever but i think it can be very hard to accept that so you know i might spend an afternoon with emma working out some plot thing and then feel like i've oh i've wasted my afternoon because i haven't got my words written and that's a, a a nasty trap to fall into because it can it can get you in a position where you're you're trying to squeeze words out when you're not ready to um which can just make you miserable so
0: I think you, it's like doing your stretches after a run or something like that. Yeah. There's all this kind of like invisible work that we do. Yes, that um, that that kind of those moments of flow and kind of like oh it's just oh wow and that discovery it rests upon. And when you're under pressure, the temptation is to cut what appear to be non-essential. Sort of self-indulgent. I'm going to go for a walk and have a think about my story. You cut them first, yeah. and those, and then of course the problem gets worse. And so that's a that is a that's so healthy to hear, and I think it's really nice. And we've all got to remember ourselves that from time to time huh. because it's you're right because and it's easier and you ima- you start imagining someone looking over your shoulder that same person that same imagined kind of cultural gatekeeper who says that stories aren't a real job and um stories are somehow frivolous and a waste of time it's that same one that says well show me the the mathematical word count and i'll believe you that you've done work yeah. otherwise it doesn't count yeah that's fantastic well um, I just i just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show Yeah, it's been, all. It's been fun. really amazing to hear your thoughts on the these different things about writing and i think there's lots there that i'm going to go away and just you just like really really nailed to the wall a couple of really foundational things about how to write well and and without hating yourself so that's really really useful now your book novel is uh, your latest one is uh, the Deathless, and at the time of recording, it's going to be out next Thursday. Is that right? Yes, it's coming out on
1: the 14th of June, um, and there's various kind of launch events and things going on around it. So, if anyone is in London, uh, I'm going to be at Blackwell's High Holborn on the 14th doing a uh, a launch event there with a Q- uh, Choose Your Own Adventure Q and A, which I'm quite excited about. Ooh. Um, so I'd love to see you there and then uh, I'm doing a a little tour with um, Dan Patrick who's just had Witch Sign come out um, which is another fab fantasy book and we're going to be going to Liverpool, Birmingham and Melton Keynes, but not in that order (laughs) but um, yes we're going to be doing events there towards the end of the month.
0: And Um, if people want to uh, find out about your Events and what you're up to and such like. Uh where um on the um electronically distributed system of information we call the internet, can they find you?
1: So the easiest thing to do is uh I've got a website called uh dot com, which you can go to, or I'm on Twitter at runpee, and they're probably the easiest places to find me quickly. Fantastic. Uh, and so I'm, I'm gonna... always happy to say hello, so feel free to say hi.
0: Fantastic. I'm going to I, I, in the show notes of today's episode. I will put links um, to all Pete's books and also the website and the Twitter, so you can go there and uh, find them out for yourself. Do check them out. I can. Uh, I, I. I've read the Vagrant and I've read the Deathless, and I can uh, uh, firmly vouch for them being um, awesome, engaging, uh, very exciting, and uh, and 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 not. Not cynical, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Dark and flavoursome and full of danger and peril. And certainly with some characters who um, I would not like to be friends with. But um, they're all they're all people. And I really enjoyed that. Well, I mean, they're all not all literally human, I should say, but they are all—they've <laughs> all got personalities. Um, so, thanks very much for being on the show, Pete, and all the best with uh, your writing. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you very much. And to everyone listening, uh, thanks very much for listening into the show. Of course, if you've got any questions, comments, concerns, anything you'd like to say to me at all, then you can get in touch with me via my website, timclepper.co.uk. Just click on the contact me link, and you can do that. Please uh, subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes, and uh, rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find out about the show and just share the the show if you enjoy it and you get value out of it. Have a wonderful writing week. Uh, remember what we've said here today, the lessons you've learned and apply them to your own writing. What you're doing is worthwhile and brilliant, and I hope that you allow yourself to enjoy it. Take care.
1: Cool, so I'm gonna stop my recording now.